Hello everyone and welcome to the show. This is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Roland Varchika, who is known online as Dimikator. Uh, he's well known for his sword and buckler research, his research into the Viking sword and shield materials, and he is most commonly found online at patreon.com forward slash Dimikator, D-I-M-I-C-A-T-O-R. So without further ado, Roland, welcome to the show. Guy, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's nice to see you. Now, just to start off, could you locate us? Whereabouts in the world are you? Well, I'm living in a rural place, maybe an hour's drive out of Hamburg, and um, this is in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, which was behind the Iron Curtain for uh, a long time. But uh, now, of course, as you know, it's not anymore, and so I'm living out here in the countryside. Lovely. And I've actually been to your house and it is gorgeous yeah <laughs> it was great having you yeah, yeah. and you came at the uh, at a really good time in the year so it yeah. was summer and we were sitting outside talking yes. swords absolutely as as we shall do this morning okay <laughs> so roland uh, what made you want to start historical martial arts and how did you actually get started okay so um before i even knew what martial arts was I had to make a decision whether I wanted to become Tarzan or Prince Valiant. Okay, and that's an that important was, decision to make. That's an absolutely important decision, which I had to make at age six or so. Yeah. And then I went for Prince Valiant. I don't know Clearly. if it has to do anything with the length of the blade that he was carrying around, <laughs> I have no idea. But um, yeah, Prince Valiant was really, really cool. So um, it was, uh, he was the reason why I went to the local library on a, reg a regular basis, because they mm -hmm. had uh, these comic books, those fantastic Hal Foster comic books. And uh, whenever I had finished one, I would go there and pick up the next volume. Okay, so that's so how that's... I got interested. Yeah, so that's how I got okay. interested in swords. And yep. um, as you well know, um, Prince Valiant is supposed to be a Viking prince, and so right. I got interested in the Vikings. And um, yeah, that never really stopped. Of course, I would mm -hmm. have a passing interest in Star Wars. I know you are sure. a Star Wars addict <laughs> or <laughs> Star Trek, but um, yeah, I always came back to the swords, uh, the real swords, the steel swords. And then in the 1990s. Um, I passed by a showcase in a street, you know, like the ones mm -hmm. where they would uh, hang up uh, movie posters or stuff like that. Right. Yeah. But there weren't any posters. Uh, there were swords in there. And You're I thought, kidding. Oh my god! Yeah, really. Th there were swords. So, where is this red. shop? <laughs> I want to go. <laughs> I don't even know if it exists anymore. But it, uh, as I said, I was a student at Art Academy uh, in southern Germany, and mm -hmm. um, ever since my childhood, I had I had this dream of um, dressing up in proper kit, not just fake stuff, yep. but the real thing, and and running about with uh, swords and. Um, Ideally with like-minded people and uh, mm -hmm. via this showcase because of course uh, I would go to this shop and turned mm -hmm. out it was just uh, Two streets from where I was living. So it was the same right. part of town It was actually an old villa and there was this guy living there I think that house belonged to his old mother and mm -hmm. the whole place was stuffed with halberds and shields oh and swords. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a private home. It wasn't a regular shop. Um, and I went in there and I thought like, oh, wow. And that was the uh, first time um, that I found out about reenactment and living history. 
Mm-hmm. I had no idea anything like that existed. And in the 90s, there was hardly anything like that going on in uh, Germany. Yeah, so okay. that's where I got my first steel weapon, which, mm-hmm. in fact, was a spearhead. It was not a sword. Okay. Uh, because I have always been a perfectionist, and there was nothing that was so appealing to me that I said, this is my sword. Okay. <laughs> so I did order one sword to be mm-hmm. custom-made for me at that point. And, um, yeah, and I picked up the spear. And that's how it all started. I got involved in reenactment, and mm-hmm. then, as you know, in reenactment, they have this eclectic sports system where they do competitive battles, Sure. But it's like tippy-tappy, you're dead, and um, there's restricted Yeah, they're, they're putting on a safe sh- display for the crowd Absolutely. rather than yeah, yeah, practicing yeah. a, a exactly. martial art. Yeah. yeah, like the SEA in America, they had to make a decision, how can we actually compromise um, the martial art or rather reduce the di- risk for the participants? And so they went yeah. for those rattan sticks. Sure. And then uh, in Europe, it was steel, blunt steel, of course, mm-hmm but restricted target areas. And right. um, yeah, so that's what I did for a couple of years and it was wild fun, but um, it dawned on me pretty quickly that it's kind of strange if you don't thrust somebody in the face and if it's uh, prohibited <laughs> to cut to the hands. Um, so okay, how, how many podcasts are there where you could just say that? Like, it's just weird not to be able to stab people in the face. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's <laughs> but right. But yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah, yeah. you are Absolutely. amongst friends, speak freely. Yeah, okay. That would actually be a really good, uh, a really good commercial. Like, um, yeah. if, you, if, you, if, you, if you want to advertise for your podcast, how many podcasts are there? Anyway, um, yeah, so um, because I started doing research uh, ever since I was a kid, because I collected mm-hmm. all the books that uh, you could get about the Vikings, about swords. And, uh, and mind you, I've never been uh, a knightly guy, so I was never really interested right. in armor and sitting on a horse and uh, mm-hmm. riding uh, against my enemy with a lance. It was always sword and shield and on the ground. That's my kind of thing. And so I realized those reenactment swords were actually incorrect in terms of proportions like the hilt sure. was extremely long while the blade was quite short yeah. and then the fullest of course were pretty wide and uh, yeah. so i wondered why is it um also um if you looked at your protective gloves and these are unauthentic to begin with they always rubbed through at the same spot which is um is that the heel of the hand, this part here? Uh, the yeah, just heel above of the, the hand, wrist. That's right. just, yeah. yeah, that's where your, your, your gloves would always rub through. And um, I, we'll come back to that later when we talk about sword ergonomics and mm-hmm. the design of sword hilts, because as it says in one of the treatises, there is nothing about the sword that is arbitrary. Each single part of the sword has its meaning and mm-hmm. you, have to, um, you have to accept that and you have to use the sword according to its design. So I will come back to that later. But anyway, it dawned on me that um, this is just a sport and while it's wild fun running through the woods and uh, hitting each other, and um, it's, also, it's also something where you need a lot of training for because you do need the control. And then uh, if you are in mass uh, skirmishes with up mm-hmm. to 1,000 people or so, then uh, you would know how to move as a, as a soul. Um, as a unit? As a unit, yeah, as a unit, mm-hmm. exactly. And um, so it does lead a lot of training. But I really wanted to know how did they actually use these swords. And then in 2000, that's when I started my basic martial arts education. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I was as a, the Americans would call it a rent fair e event, um, so yep. some reenactment uh, near Hamburg. I was visiting some friends and we would do some training behind their tents, so that was not official part of the show. And um, more and more people would come and take a look because they uh, thought it yeah. was more attractive than the fight shows that were set up for the audiences. And then there were uh, two guys which looked like they stepped right out of some, out of some uh, Avengers movie or so, like <laughs> really, really tall and yeah. wide chests. And uh, one of them stepped up to me and said like, well, you're not really killing each other, right? You never hit the head. I said, no, 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 we must not hit the head, you know, because uh, that's uh, because of safety. And uh, But yeah. we do tap the shoulder and that's supposed to be, uh, that's supposed to simulate a thrust into the neck. Um, and um, yeah, and we train that like uh, twice per uh, twice per week. And uh, so what do you do? Well, yeah, I have a martial arts school and I train every day and I work as security personnel in the red light district uh, at weekends. Come over to our place and we show you how to fight correctly. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, yeah, awesome. cool. <laughs> awesome. <yeah. laughs> and so, um, and then one of them picked up a, a, um, one of the swords and uh, moved it like uh, mm -hmm. some Eskrima stick. Like, yeah, yeah. did some really cool stunts. And I thought, oh, awesome. I want to learn that. So I did go to their place um, and uh, they were really surprised. They said, you know, you're the first sword person ever to actually come. We've talked right. to so, so many pretend knights, and they said, yeah, yeah, sure, awesome, but nobody would ever come. So, ah, no, I really want to learn how to mm. fight properly. And um, so that was great. And I still owe them big time because they introduced me to principles. So the one thing which uh, I really loved about their place instantly was uh, they said, so whatever we're going to teach you, all the technique, um, is only so that you understand the underlying principles. Mm -hmm. It's not about the technique, so it's not a collection of tricks. It's the principles that make uh, our fighting work, and um, this is what we're going to teach. And this is something that put me into a position to address um, medieval fencing manuscripts, combat manuscripts, in a mm -hmm. different uh, manner, or in an appropriate manner later on. So, yeah, and uh, so that's how I learned, uh, that's how I got my basic martial arts education. So was and that a screamer? That, yeah, it's a screamer-based. It was like okay. a mishmash. Um, they had done a lot of, they had done Wing Chun, Kung Fu, and mm -hmm. uh, kickboxing competition stuff. And, uh, and of course, they were working uh, on the street as a bouncer every right. single weekend. And so... That, that's a really good reality check. Exactly, exactly. At least for what they uh, uh, for yeah. what they are doing. There are actually a couple of uh, videos online where you see one of them standing in front of a club uh, so, and you, mm -hmm. uh, the street is crowded with people. And then out of nowhere, somebody comes flying, whoo, like with a kung fu jump. <laughs> kung fu jump. And he just grabs him and puts him on the ground as if nothing has happened. <laughs> and, then he, and, and you don't really see what's going on there. People, so many people yeah. standing around. And then the police come over, and it takes like three three policemen to take control of that over that person mm -hmm. that he was just uh, holding down in a lock mm -hmm. um, comparatively yeah. easily. So yeah, so that's this kind of guy. So uh, yeah, um, yeah, they, they 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 know they know their job, and um, it mm -hmm. was great learning from them. So I really owe them big time. Yeah, it's great having that kind of bullshit detector handy when yeah. you're training. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and. Um, they also introduced me to sparring because mm -hmm. from lesson one, 
you uh, had the opportunity to spar, and of course I okay. would. Uh, so it was day one, and at the end of the session, they asked, do you want to, oops, sorry, I just destroyed my phones. You can cut that out later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back again. Okay, so from day one, from day one, I had the opportunity to spar, and uh, they would say, mm -hmm. okay, so now we've introduced you to some basic concepts. Do you want to do some sparring? Here's a helmet, here's a padded stick, let's do it. And um, it's been a long time since I have seen sparks, yeah, yeah. at that point, you know, the yeah. feeling. Uh, I think maybe the last time was in the playground when I fell off uh, yeah. uh, <clears throat> the, oh God, now Swings. I lost the wood. The rutsche, it's the uh, slide. slide. The slide, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So maybe ever since I fell off a slide in the playground, I haven't experienced these sparks, but um, I did that very first uh, session. So they okay. introduced me to sparring and uh, also um, how to view protective equipment because we would right. do a lot of power hitting with sticks mm -hmm. versus some old tires. And um, then, of course, we would need the mass so that we could hit somebody with force with a padded stick. They insisted yeah. on padded sticks. They said, because I asked, ah, oh, but I know a lot of Eskrima guys, they use rattan sticks and no padding. Yeah, that's because they cannot hit properly. <laughs> if we okay. hit you with a rattan stick, you fall over and unconsciously. <laughs> so okay. they were quite convinced about what they were doing. And of course, when people actually put it into practice on a regular basis, you don't question them. Yeah, sure. This is yeah. This is also something which I tell people. I don't necessarily I, agree with their paddy sticks idea, but yeah, in that situation, you just go go along with it. Yeah, exactly. And um, so um, I wanted to make a point that uh, I was introduced to the benefits of protective equipment. Yeah. But also um, the flaws because um, when there is no danger of actually being injured if there is no present threat then yeah. you act differently yeah you that's take right. risks and um, that's why i think it's a really good idea whenever you go to a martial arts school uh, if there are a number of fight simulations so yes the, the paradox of all martial arts training is that you are training something which you cannot really apply in training yeah okay so that's also my uh, distinction, my, 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 uh, that's the difference between combat sports and a martial art. In combat sports, you train the thing which you can use in the competition exactly in that manner, one-to-one, yeah. -one, while in martial arts, that's different. And so when uh, later um, I was doing historical swordsmanship, then of course that uh, was an even more imminent question because... Mm -hmm. Swordsmanship is about using sharp implements, namely swords. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's something that people forget a lot. I mean, you have mm. all these geeks talking about uh, swordsmanship, and then when you ask around, hardly anybody has ever held a sharp sword. I mean, the proportion of people yeah. uh, training, sword, uh, training complex, sophisticated sword technique, not even having picked up a sharp sword ever, is yeah. quite astounding. It's not yep. to diminish anybody's training efforts. It's just something you should no, think about. But it takes it takes a particular training environment and some quite a lot of money to get decent sharp swords that you're willing to actually you know, put against each other. And so what I do for that is I introduce students one on one, sharp on sharp, um, 
and it's entirely voluntary so students don't ever have to do it but yeah it's it's i think it's critically important that that is available because it does change everything once you've done that i absolutely agree and um i would also like to say that it's not important to do it these days because you don't have to learn how to properly use a sword in a, a true fight so if you are happy with uh Running through the woods like I did for many years with blunt swords, then that's good. If you yeah. if you if you enjoy competition with blunted steel swords and loads of protection, if this is what gives you your kicks, then go for it. Absolutely yeah. okay. But I've always been interested in um, how did they do it? How did mm. they actually use the sharp swords? Right. So um, I have never ever really been interested in competition or not even the communities that go with it i mean you do need people to talk to and it's most enjoyable and i met so many wonderful people over the years but the reason why i started was just my geeky interest in swords and swordsmanship that's it that's my driving factor that's what keeps me going even today and yeah. um yeah I've, I've and i've come down many paths and many streets uh that i have never even dreamt of mm. so what are your main research interests at the moment right now i'm in the process of uh, writing an extensive article which follows up a lecture which i held last year at an academic conference at castle coburg mm-hmm. and i'm particularly proud of that one because um for the first time ever, I was invited by one of my heroes, um, that is Alfred Geibich. He's like the mm. Hewitt Oakshot of the Viking sword. So everybody, okay. everybody who does Viking swords knows the Geibich typology of swords. Okay. Um, of course, everybody, uh, people also know the Pedersen typology. Mm-hmm. I know there are some geeks listening, so I'm aware <laughs> of Pedersen. <laughs> but Geibich's typology um, is uh, even more sophisticated, and uh, so I have uh, read his works long time, decades ago. And um, last year, he called me up. I had already made his acquaintance earlier on, and he called me up and said, "Roland, um, I'm retiring next year, and uh, I'm retiring this year, and I want to, I want to organize a final conference, and the topic, the topics, will be everything that I love. So it's going to be guns, swords, and reenactment." Yeah, mm. you can choose. I want you to hold a lecture. You can choose the topics up to you. Mm. Uh, choose a ch- uh, subject, and it would be really, really wonderful if you came. Nobody can apply for holding a lecture. I'm only inviting uh, selected oh, people. Oh wow! Yeah, so yeah, that made me really feel very, very proud because I um, bet. yeah, it's like a circle. It's, it's like uh, things going full circle. Sure. Yeah. So I had this romantic interest in Viking swords uh, and the Vikings in mm. general. Um, I ended up doing swordsmanship, historical swordsmanship, for decades. And because I wanted to understand the fighting, I also did a lot of research into the material culture. So I looked at original artifacts. So I go out to collections on a regular basis, documenting the original swords. And then I made a couple of um, really interesting observations that thus far has completely escaped um, the... Um, attention of any researchers and this is what I held the lecture about and that's uh, ergonomics ergonomic design of early medieval swords which I find super interesting (laughs) well okay and and I'm sure the listeners will too so what tell us about the ergonomics of early swords 
Okay, so um, I guess a lot of people, a lot of the people who are listening to this show have uh, probably seen some of the videos uh, and the material I put out about the twisted pommels. So it seems that um, while the aesthetics of the medieval sword and the early medieval sword is uh, harmonic, symmetrical design, mm -hmm. because symmetry is actually not the best choice for ergonomics, just look yeah. at any given yeah. knife in your kitchen yeah because yeah. the gripping the gripping hand is anything but symmetrical right um they it seems like they tweaked um the ideal of symmetry in subtle ways to better accommodate the gripping hand so the swords such pardon such as like what uh, such as okay so um if you if you extend the sword forward like um mm -hmm going to long point, um, extending, making the blade an extension of your lower arm. And then with pretty much every sword that, say, that has, say, a, a disc a pommel, mm -hmm. the lumbar muscle below your thumb, at the base of the thumb, yeah. will press the pommel away from the hand while the smaller fingers, the pinky and the ring finger, mm -hmm. will pull it towards the palm, right? right? And this results in a very subtle twist. Yeah. So if the pommel is aligned with the blade and the cross guard, so if they are basically parallel mm -hmm. in one plane, then the whole sword will turn. So you would have to okay. make up. Yeah, you would have to make up for that with a slight twist of your wrist. But that mm -hmm. is against um, that's against the idea of martial arts to begin with, which sure. wants to use your body to its optimum. So if uh, so, you want your blade, uh, you want your edges to be aligned with uh, the ulna to have yeah. a perfect uh, cutting plane. Mm -hmm. And uh, a simple way to allow for that is that you that the sword maker twists the pommel to begin with. So if the right. pommel is already twisted, yeah, then it does not change the alignment of the blade anymore. And that's super fascinating. It's, Absolutely. Uh, it's, a, it's a means of uh, manipulating swords or customizing them in a sense that uh, seems to uh, not only apply to early medieval swords, but also to high and late medieval swords. So any one-handed sword that you look mm -hmm. at seems to have that feature. Maybe save for some pear-shaped pommels, but, but all the disc pommels, uh, they are slightly twisted. Are slightly offset. They're slightly offset. So, so you could probably tell whether it was for a right-hander or a left-hander. That's absolutely correct. And that's super fascinating, ha! isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I did not know that. <laughs> that's uh, one of the reasons cool. I started this podcast is because I get to have geeky conversations where I learn a whole <laughs> ton of stuff. Okay. No, this is, this is what made me think in the first place because the, um, mm -hmm. it's just a nuance. We're talking two to a max of seven degrees. Right. So you could. So there are probably a lot of swords where you could uh, say, well, maybe this is just because it's been in the ground for so long, and we cannot yeah. really tell. Maybe there's deformation, um, uh, or you could say, hell, this is not much, so it doesn't really affect the the mm -hmm. sword that much, and uh, this is just a kind of inaccuracy you could expect if it's a product of manual labor. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of reasons why uh, this does not hold true. First. Can I just you say are, you're as, a I'm a craftsman, yes. of, not, not a particularly good one, but I could do craftsman. Handwork can produce flawless results that machines fail to produce. 
Absolutely. Not all the time, but, but if you want something done perfectly, you don't run it through mm. a machine, you get an artisan of the highest level to make it. So exactly. that argument about, well, okay, sure, there are some swords in the historical record that are made by, shall we say, apprentices. Mm-hmm. But there are also swords made by astonishingly accomplished masters of the craft. And if that pommel is on slightly off, it's because that person put it on slightly off exactly. for a good reason. No exactly. question. Yeah. Also, uh, also, there are means to um, correct any mistakes. Like uh, mm-hmm. I've seen a couple of swords, regardless whether these come from the early Middle Ages or the late Middle Ages, where you see little shims put into the cavity, the opening mm-hmm. for the tang, where the tang enters the pommel. Yep. So that hole down there is oftentimes somewhat bigger. And then they put in little shims to put the tang exactly where it is supposed to be. So if you wanted a particular position or if you wanted to correct any inaccuracy, you had the means. Right. And then statistics is the other thing. So if it was accidental, then you would have to expect a distribution of clockwise and counterclockwise twists uh, of two to seven degrees, 50-50, right? But that's not the case. It depends. If, if the twist is an artifact of the way the pommel is put on, and most smiths are right-handed, then that twist will occur the same way for maybe 90% of the time. Um, yeah, but I'm, uh, but I'm talking about the uh, any kind of deformation that may have happened so uh, statistically oh right yeah yeah if if it's after the fact yeah 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 so anyway so this is not the case you have a Mm -hmm. distribution of about 80 to 20 percent and um, so 80 percent is counterclockwise twist Mm -hmm. which is the correct twist for a right-hander while 20 percent is the opposite which okay. uh, pretty much matches the distribution of left-handers in professional sports too. Like somebody told me that um, uh, well, I think there are like 10 to 15% of left-handers in the population. I think it's 10%, something like that, yeah. Yeah, 10, yeah. Okay, so in some combat sports, you have a higher percentage of um, left-handers. Of sure. course, we would need a much bigger database. And um, yeah. the lecture that which I held was in part to even direct any attention of the academic world to the subject which has been completely neglected so far and it was great because they loved it it was fantastic there were people like um, Herbert Westphal who has been researching and documenting bladed weapons for decades and mm-hmm. uh, I've read so many of his uh, books and articles he would and he would come up to me after the and he's this distinguished elderly gentleman. <laughs> he would yeah, yeah. come uh, uh, up to me after the lecture and said, oh, this was really, really exciting and interesting. Now I really understand why the grips are so short. Of course, mm. you have to grip the pommel too. That makes so much yeah, sense. Yeah. <laughs> so it was wonderful. And then my friend Ingo, who's an archaeologist too, and one of my long-term training partners, uh, uh, said to me after the lectures, you know, this is what I really enjoy about the academic world versus the online discourse. Mm-hmm. Here, these are pros and experts, and nobody comes with stupid arguments and doubts anything. Right. They can tell. They can tell if something is properly researched or not, mm. and if it is, if it is properly researched, you get uh, you, you get um, yeah. according and, and if it's recognition. properly researched, if it's properly researched, um, they might disagree with you, but they can't. They don't just dismiss it. Exactly. 
yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and also um, this is something which I hate about uh, online discussion. There oh, is... I don't do online discussion anymore. Oh. I just don't. Yeah, do well, it. no, I'm running a couple of uh, I'm running a couple of platforms, and okay. um, I have uh, like um, certain ways to handle them. So. If I um, if I run a platform like the Facebook uh, Dimicato Facebook pages uh, mm -hmm. or like my my YouTube channel, I hate YouTube comment sections. They're the oh. worst in the world. It's just yeah. oh, I really hate it. Sorry for I shifted out there, to Vimeo. <laughs> I shifted to Vimeo because I know, I know, YouTube for a is just a cesspool. And, yeah, I'm, I'm considering that too. But then again, just recently I had this uh, guy who joined my Patreon and. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, wrote a message and said that ah, I've been watching so many bad videos for rages. I, only now I realize that I found your uh, material and I really love it and it's fantastic. And uh, here yeah. um, I want to support your work. It's really, really great. So this guy would not have found the way to my work if it wasn't for sure. crappy YouTube. But then, <laughs> but then you have to then you have to moderate comments on. Yeah, well, I mean, these days I just say I don't, uh, you're welcome to leave a message because people just love to leave comments, uh, mm -hmm. but be aware that uh, I only check them randomly. If you want to get in touch, send an right. email yeah, or yeah. send a note here. Fair here. And then um, in regards to discussions, every now and then there's something really interesting. And uh, also by presenting, uh, say, you know, I do illustration a lot, and um, so if I present, uh, because I'm a professional illustrator, um, yeah. so if I present, say, a reconstruction illustration of some 11th century harbor, so, and I present mm -hmm. this online, then sometimes some people uh, would say, yes, but this and this detail is actually sure. not correct, or um, people will come up with ideas or point you to other places, and so it is helpful. But sure. um, the discussions, of course, are sometimes a pain. And um, so these days, the way I handle it, and I only handle it because they're for the other readers, not for the, for the troll or yeah. for the, for the uh, know-it-all guy. Yeah. I handle it so that the other readers can see how I handle it. See? Okay. Yeah. Because I feel obliged to do so. Because this is what I look at when I go to somebody else's uh, platform, which I hardly okay. ever do. But if there are comments, mm -hmm. I first check, does the author, does the author reply at all? And mm -hmm. if he reply, whom does he reply to? And in which way does he handle any, mm -hmm. um, any yeah, discussion? Okay. It gives yes. you a good insight into the person's character. Exactly. And of course, you know, any discussion about martial arts, if it is not face-to-face -face in a dojo, sword in hand, very, very quickly comes to a point where there's no constructive um, yeah. meaning to it anymore. Yeah. This is what I keep pointing out to people. I say, you can find me twice per year in Berlin. I mean, I have, I have created uh, an event which is solely about uh, experimentation and um, free play. 48 hours, people are fencing from all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was Greg Melly who actually, is it, uh, yeah. Is this the Berlin Buckler Bouts? That's the Berlin Buckler Bouts. That's the Berlin yeah, okay. Buckler Bouts. Uh, well, I'm just saying I, that so the, re so the listeners oh, can actually find okay. it. Yeah, I can say a few <laughs> yeah. words about the Berlin Buckler Bouts in yeah, a second. But, just, but I just uh, tell people, come and find me. Um, I have changed my opinion often enough, so I'm happy mm -hmm. to reassess any of uh, my current uh, ideas. Sure. If you can convince me, sword in hand, come and find me. And um, that's usually a discussion stopper, because then yeah. they either stop or 
very, very rarely anybody ever comes. Of course, you would have to travel and so on. But uh, yeah. uh, it would be helpful if, there, uh, if it wasn't so easy to leave your opinion everywhere, whether you, know, yeah. whether you have something to say or no. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> Berlin, Buckle yeah. <laughs> Berlin Bucklebouts, yeah. Um, I remember Greg Malley uh, saying when I was at my first WMAW, that's the Western Martial Arts Workshop held mm -hmm. in uh, Racine in Wisconsin in the US every two years. Very nice event. Um, so first time yeah, I was lovely. there, he, uh, he said, you know, the best things happen between classes. That's right. And that, that's right. And then I thought, like, why not make an event that is solely between classes? So, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great idea. <laughs> so that's basically the Berlin Bucklerbouts. I was looking at what do I enjoy most uh, when I'm not teaching or participating yep. in a class, and that's usually free play and doing uh, discussions that may ensue mm. from the fighting. And um, yeah, so that's the Berlin Bucklerbouts. It's held biannually uh, in Berlin, as the name says. And um, well, it was canceled for the first time uh, due to the COVID-19 situation sure. this May. But it's held every six months. And the basic idea was I wanted a regular check um, for my students so that outside their class, outside the hierarchy mm -hmm. that they had entered when they entered the school, because very rarely you see somebody actually um, jumping ahead of somebody who has been there for mm -hmm. a, a longer duration. It happens, but not very often. So that they had a, a regular place to go to and check, test their metal against somebody else from outside the club. That was the initial idea. It's really important to have that opportunity. Yeah. Because yeah. you can get into a bubble in a club. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and you get used to each other's mistakes. And yeah, it, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah, like um, for instance, yeah, okay. Now you also you also research uh, Viking sword and shield, and spear oh, yeah. and shield mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I I only do research into uh, systems that have written sources, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Treatises like Fiore yeah. or mm -hmm. One Thirty Three or Capoferro or whatever, right? So, what's your approach to reconstructing these earlier sources for which we earlier styles for which we don't have? proper written sources. Yeah. Well, um, of course, we will never know how they actually fought. Yeah. Actually, we don't even know that even if we have written records like the combat treatises. Mm -hmm. So we have to work from a couple of assumptions. Like, uh, what do we have? We have uh, swords. We know, mm -hmm. we know the, um, the weaponry. We have surviving mm -hmm. artifacts. Yeah. So we can look at the artifacts. Um, and this is something we should do uh, even when we have written records. So yeah. uh, then uh, there's this uh, concept of universe, universality. Is that how you pronounce mm -hmm. it? Sure. Um, Stephen Perlman, who wrote the very recommendable book, uh, the book of martial power, um, called it universality um, that uh, you have underlying principles that rule everything in martial arts. Now, this sounds a bit like magic, but if you think about any human activity... No, yeah, I know you know it. <laughs> Any human activity is bound to the laws of nature. So that's physics and yep. um, the anatomy of the human body. Yeah. Yep. So anything we do um, works uh, under these parameters. And sure. these, so, so martial arts, like any activity, 
um, is built on underlying principles, and these principles, in turn, are based on physics and anatomy. So if that was true, um, even thousand and thousand thousand years, of, uh, years ago, uh, then mm -hmm. they would have fought in a very similar way. And um, well, that depends yeah, because on it, what the, the what determines victory in a fight is largely culturally determined. So that's the other thing. That's so exactly you have to, you have to know yeah. what 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 victory conditions they were looking for. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like, like you know, are, you, actually, are you supposed to a, cut the person's face off, or are you yeah. supposed to throw them on their back, or are you supposed to take their weapon away, or what are you supposed to do? Yeah, what what constitutes the ideal victory? You're now jumping to uh, something that I'm I sorry. wanted to explain next. No, no, that's fine, <laughs> it's fine because that's that's exactly the most difficult bit about everything we do. Yeah, uh, even um, even with the combat treatises, we sure, hardly absolutely. ever know the context. Yeah, so the actual context is uh, super important. And even if we knew the context, then we're still looking at a very limited context because it's 99% uh, is uh, single combat only. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, uh, we, we do have a number of contexts even in the fight books, like uh, fighting in armor, fighting with various weapons, fighting on mm -hmm. horseback. Uh, but then it's only one-on-one. -on -one. So uh, what is really important to understand is that all violence, all combat, always follows certain rules. Yeah, it, uh, it's um, that there is no, despite, despite universal martial arts principles, there is mm -hmm. no universal martial art. That's quite yes. interesting. And that is because violence never happens in a vacuum. So uh, a martial art is always part of a given culture. So right. a culture's, a society's ideas on violence, on their fighting men and women, on weapons, on warfare, is always reflected in that particular martial arts, like mm -hmm. codes of honor, religious ideas, um, socio-economical um, yeah. conditions, whatever. And these, these cultural aspects, they are the most difficult to research. Yeah? Mm. But to come back to your initial question, if ever I do a reconstruction, say uh, I will run an experiment and I want to recreate uh, blade damage on some Bronze Age swords. Mm -hmm. yeah? So if I set up a particular dynamic combat uh, excerpt, so to speak, and so a little yeah. sequence, um, then this sequence has to be built on universal martial arts principles. Absolutely. Okay. It, it, the only yeah. exception, the only exception that is allowed, um, if it, uh, so the only way that it could contradict universal martial arts principles is if I could explain that con uh, contradiction out of my research uh, of the cultural context. Mm. Okay, that's the only that's the only exception. Um, of course, we will only um, we, we will never exactly know if this is correct, but this is my approach. So, sure. um, yeah, researching the cultural context is the most difficult part. Actually, uh, efficiency in, in martial arts—that's pretty easy. Yeah, uh, a, a lock is <laughs> a, a hand lock is a lock. Uh, a thrust in the face is a thrust in the face. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so get, getting your easy. angulating your sword behind somebody's shield. Yeah, it's just geometry. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and and then uh, we know about the physics of the sword. We know how to move a sword efficiently. So that is, yeah. you called it a labor-saving device at one point. I really yes. love that term. Yeah. So if you know how to effortlessly use that 
implement, then um, you can get a much better idea of swordsmanship. Also, you understand why it has been such a popular weapon for such a long time. Mm. Yeah, because um, that's another thing that people have um, misconceived. Like, I remember in my reenactment days, people said, like, oh, the spear, that's the Gatling gun of the Viking Age. It's <laughs> super efficient. I, I thought it was really funny, but then I thought, like, hmm, no, it's kind of strange that they were so obsessed with swords all the time when the spear was so much greater than the sword. Why would... It, it, see, it almost seems like in history, everybody, anybody who was able to pick up a sword picked up a sword. And, yeah. um, and I have while, theories. Yeah. So, um, like, there's one, one really interesting experiment I ran at one point. Um, we were talking about swords earlier on and uh, how it really helps to better understand swordsmanship. So there was this experiment that my friend Miguel Mönstedt, who's a really good uh, spear fighter, he was using mm -hmm. a blunt two-handed spear, and I was putting on a mask and some uh, additional protection, and uh, I had a sword and a buckler, a blunt sword. Mm -hmm. There's one 15th century depiction of that kind of match, this kind of sure. setup. So we wanted to see how it actually works. So um, I was, I mean, you know, if you have a shorter weapon, you have to uh, shorten range as quickly as possible yeah. so you get into your killing zone, yeah. so to speak. Uh, yeah. Why the other one with a longer weapon can take it easy and just retreats yeah. so that you impale yourself. So you have to make a charge. And um, eight out of 10, he just poked me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> it was really easy. I mean, I would bind, yeah. his, I would just bind his sword, trying to uh, keep it safe yeah, yeah. While, while I entered. And he would just uh, gently rotate out of it. Disengage, exactly. Also, a good spearman can change the length of the spear pretty Absolutely. easily by yeah. withdrawing it. It's a really and good weapon. It's a great weapon. And, um, but then we changed to, uh, then, I, then I traded my blunt for a sharp. Aha. So we did this, haha. That's very different. Because <laughs> yeah, you yeah. can actually bite his weapon. Exactly. And what was more, I didn't have to look. I yeah. realized when I was using uh, the sharp that earlier on, to get an idea what is happening in the bind, I had in my peripheral vision tried to take track of where the spear moved because yeah. I couldn't sense it through the blade. Now I could focus on my target and anything that happened in the bind just happened and I felt because I got all these tactile information and disengaging was less easy for him yeah. because there was no more, uh, there was no slippery sensation yeah. anymore. It was clear, exactly. crystal clear, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And crystal clear bites um, into the wood. Yeah. Um, information coming from the bind. And um, yeah, and that completely reversed the outcome. Really? So, yeah, it was like three to seven or so, but almost okay. reversed the outcome. Okay. And um, because the um, active fulen, the active sensing, yeah. is only for me. The, right. the wooden pole doesn't have that. Okay. So this Not is something that degree, is sure. yeah. So so this is something that a sharp blade. Um, gives you, uh, you can sense actively, you have a different means of controlling the bind and getting sensory tactile information from it. And um, that is uh, exclusively for the sword. So uh, I okay. think this is, this is one of the reasons why the sword is so good. The other reason mm. uh, is a bit less appealing. Uh, swords are really good at massacring, massacring and butchering a lot of people very quickly. Okay. If you, if uh, um, 
if, like in, uh, in the late 8th century, uh, in the Saxon Wars, Charlemagne ordered 4,000 Saxons put to death after a battle. Mm -hmm. And uh, what do you pick up to do the job if you are part of the execution, executional commando, a sword or a spear? So um, if, you have to, uh, if you have to kill a lot of people, you use, the, you use a bladed weapon. Just think that the, the latest, most ghastly example was uh, in the 90s in Rwanda, where mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of people were put to death uh, by the use machetes. of machetes. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So this is something else which we usually don't talk about when we think about... Um, yeah, it's not the glamorous bit of sword fighting. It's not, certainly not, but... Um, if, 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 if you really want to understand what the sword is all about, this is something you really have to face and you have to talk yeah. about. Um, there are definitely more people who um, fell to the sword, who died uh, by the sword, um, who were butchered rather than killed in a fair uh, fight. fight. Yeah. Sure. So, so that's the other thing why the sword was so super <laughs> successful for so many <laughs> centuries yeah and that's something you have to face okay um well <laughs> i'm quite sure how to follow how to follow that one up um, uh, well how right. about talking about a pandemic <laughs> uh, yeah yes okay 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 <laughs> right yeah so so yes yeah, so how is i mean i imagine you're you're locked down at home um and i imagine the clubs are shut in germany but so not just how has Corona affected your training, but where do you see things going in the next six months or a year? Hmm. Well, personally, uh, personally for me, it was not much of a difference. It didn't change a lot because I'm working at home anyway. I'm living in mm -hmm. a rural place in a uh, nice house with a nice garden. And yeah. um, the one thing that changed was there was no more planes in the sky. So right. I can live with that. And... Yeah. Um, because uh, I usually don't leave this place other than driving to Hamburg for training once per week. Mm -hmm. You see, I'm, um, I, it's about one and a half hours drive to Hamburg to right. uh, go to training. So um, for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, I would drive to Hamburg once per week for a four-hour session, and mm -hmm. then the rest would be solo training, plus anything right. that happened during events yeah, so sure. there would be like uh, i don't know maybe 10 weekends or so where i would be fighting all the time at uh, mm -hmm. some event or some class um yeah so uh, all classes were cancelled this year and um no more driving to hamburg mm -hmm. and uh what can i say it kind of feels like a vacation from okay. 25 years of playing with swords and uh, yeah. as much fun as it is it's kind of nice to have some more time at my disposal to do other things. Um, anything from writing up, uh, finishing my lecture, fin finishing my article for um, that uh, publication, or gardening, or yeah, okay. or sharpening swords. I can do <laughs> cutting tests here. In fact, um, actually, yeah. only two weeks ago, uh, some of my sword friends came over, and uh, we did have one fencing session two days they stayed here and we were like uh, eight people so that was great that was fantastic it was also good to see that a couple of months not doing any sparring doesn't really mm -hmm. affect your efficiency if you have yes well as long training as you keep up your solo training that's fine yeah yeah, yeah. of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true yeah so it didn't really affect me that much um in terms of 
the, the so-called HEMA community, I don't know, because I don't, I have to admit, I don't really care for it that much. <laughs> Fair <laughs> because, enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been part of uh, that for a long time when I mm -hmm. went to all the events. Uh, so I went to the usual development. Uh, you go to uh, all the events you could go to. That was in the early 2000s when I had um, found out yeah, about his. We first met at Swordfish, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. That's it. Was it Gothenburg? Uh, in fact, it was the only one that was held at Malmö, wasn't it? Malmö. That's the first one, yeah. yeah. It was okay. the first one. Yeah, exactly. Ah, I vividly remember it. I was really super excited because um, there was this famous guy, Windsor. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 I was, nobody knew about me and I had um, some specific... Well, I, I don't think that's true anymore, Roland. I, I <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so that everybody knows it was you um, who agreed to listen to my ideas for uh, 45 minutes or so. I said, yeah, sure, sure. I have some time. Uh, tell me uh, what you, show me what you have to show. And then and um, I was really happy that uh, you were quite impressed, even though I don't do anything like that anymore. <laughs> yeah, but it's just 17 years ago, mate. Yeah, yeah, I that's mean, right. If, if we were still doing the same thing that we were doing 17 okay, years ago, then we haven't really been... Wrong. Yeah. yeah, well, we haven't been training, have we? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, these days you can say uh, if somebody uh, is doing some technique or some reconstruction or interpretation that you don't really agree, don't really agree with, you can say, oh, God, this is so 2004. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, now, I have a couple of standard questions I tend to finish up yeah. um, these interviews with. Um, the first one is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? Mm. Um it's probably the book that I have been working on for 10 years now, but then right. again, I'm still working on it. So it's uh, the problem in contrast to you is that um, I do all the photography, the illustration, and, yeah. um, and it's a bit like a, it's a bit like a, a dough. You work it, you work yeah. it, it becomes bigger and bigger. So I've already cut it into two volumes. So it's supposed to be a book about, um, the, uh, about Sword and Shield. Mm -hmm. And um, the first volume will be about the time uh, roughly from 800 to 1100. And okay. uh, ever since I started, I get so much more access to collections. So yeah. I have a worldwide network by now. And it's super cool that, like at that conference, there was this guy, a curator at a museum in Ingolstadt, the military museum. So have you ever been to the Armee Museum in Ingolstadt? And I said, uh, I'm afraid not. Oh, you really have to come. We've got loads of Viking swords too. You have to come and look at all of them. <laughs> I thought, like, oh, <laughs> well, okay, if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> so it's super cool. So I get more and more access to originals, but that also means that uh, I find out more and more stuff. Like the I, I have a ergonomics. Yeah. But I, I have a suggestion for you. Yeah, go ahead, please. Okay. All right. The problem with this is, as with any research book, like literally, my last book from, from medieval manuscripts to modern practice, literally, a few weeks after it came out, Michael Chidester published the first ever collation of the Getty manuscript, which totally mm -hmm. belongs in the book. And I'm like, ah, if I just waited mm -hmm. a month, I could have. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So here's what I do to get the book out the door. Because until it's out in people's hands, it's useless. It's just, it doesn't even exist, right? Yeah, yeah. Is, okay, you produce the first draft or whatever, and then the second draft, and that goes to an editor, and then that goes to beta readers, and the beta readers make comments, and then you make corrections, and you end up with something which is 
to the reader it's intended for, it's a lot better than nothing. Okay? Mm. And you're definitely doing them a favor by giving them the book. Right? Mm. Okay. So then I conceive of publishing the book as distributing the book to the next round of beta readers. Mm -hmm. So the first edition mm -hmm. of the book mm -hmm. is just the, the next round of corrections. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if the book's done well, um, then, you know, there are no significant corrections for years and years. Right. Yeah, I see. But, but so like, you know, but I'm already working on a second edition of my theory and practice book mm. because some of the reviews have some really good ideas for how it could be improved. Mm. Right. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't have published it. It just means that until I publish it, I don't get that feedback. And so I can't make the book better. Mm. So I, I conceive of publishing the book as simply um, the getting the next round of edits done. Yeah, uh, that perfectly makes sense. And in a way, I understand that completely. And um, I address it somewhat differently because I am already putting out material. There are oh, sure. people already who have their swordsmiths uh, twist the pommels of their swords. Yeah, yeah, yeah. shorten their <laughs> reenactment swords scripts due to my research. Yes. So uh, I am publishing, um, but sure. and I'm also putting out material um, so why can't you again, get the book out? Because uh, there's still a number of swords that I need to look at first and, okay. um, uh, and a few more shields. Okay, that's it. If thanks to me prodding you, you actually <laughs> produce the book in a reasonable time, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who are going to be sending me thank you emails. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best okay. uh, because it's not only, as I said, writing. It's, uh, it's the research, it's the writing, but it's also all the, the illustration work and, and the graphic yeah, yeah. design. And then um, I will probably publish as a crowdfunding project rather than going to an established publishing house. Yeah, yeah sure. Because... What does a publishing house do for you? They do the design. Uh, they layout do... marketing. Exactly. I do all the marketing. I've been doing it for yeah. years. I have a long yeah. list of uh, people. You really don't need be... a publishing house. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so that's the idea. No, but um, I'm working on it. I stopped making any predictions when it's actually finished. But, that's a good um, point. It's yeah. But it's getting. Um, I'm getting closer and closer to it. So, Good. in a sense, yeah, it's an idea I've never acted on as there is no book out yet. But okay, but you are working yeah, on it. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, th I, think, I think when it does come out, you'll, you'll kick yourself for not having produced it years ago. And be already on the third edition. We will see. <laughs> we you will see. My, yeah. <laughs> and of course, if you, if you need any like help on the publishing side of things, like getting it into production, what have you, just oh, I will certainly pick you up on um, yeah. doing the corrections, the the, the the language, because I mean, I'm oh, German, sure, so, okay. And this book, the first, um, it's the first edition will be in English, uh, and right? There may be okay. there may be additional ones in other languages, but um, okay. Well, standing by. Can't wait. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. My last question. Um, somebody gives you a million pounds, euros, some other currency um, to improve historical martial arts worldwide. What would mm -hmm. you do with that money? I don't know if a million would actually suffice, but I would put up um, a decent training center 
with halls, much like a theme park, with halls that are appropriate. Like so, if you oh. are doing your if you're doing your 15th century uh, longsword training, you do it in a proper training hall that is a reconstruction of. Uh, oh God! I want to come. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like a Viking longhouse yeah. kind of thing. There would be uh, anything you need to accommodate people. So there would yeah. be apartments, and um, depending on where I would put up that um, that that training center, it could be, for instance, uh, located right next to the history park. Uh, Bernau. Mm -hmm. So you could, if you wanted, um, stay there in period kit and oh, live, cool. it, live in the period for a while. So ha have you a kind of living history aspect. Exactly. Uh, but you could also just, you could also just, um, you could also just rent an apartment with your friends and um, take it easy and uh, not, um, and, and, and have a shower when you want one and uh, yeah, have a beer yeah. in the evening. And so it would be this huge center. And um, of course, there's no limits. Um, you could have all the best uh, instructors in the world. And ideally, they would actually live there. Yeah, so, <laughs> okay. and, 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 and there would be uh, stables for the horses, so anybody who wants to do mounted combat. And, um, and then there would be shooting ranges. And, you can, and the good thing about Bernau would also be there's a research center, archaeological mm -hmm. uh, research center, so you could um, cooperate with them and uh, look at uh, original weapons and things like that. And um, so it would also... Um, there would, in the long run, there would also be actual swordsmiths who would make swords on uh, on site, and yeah. So a million will not suffice, but it's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant idea. I love the idea of you know if you're doing an 18th century small sword, you're in mm -hmm. like an 18th century style. Draw, yes. enormous drawing room or ballroom or yes. something to do your <laughs> and of course there in. would be decent uh, training weapons for everybody because absolutely. that's always the problem whenever and you how about period musicians oh absolutely absolutely <laughs> <laughs> that's a must I mean there are depictions of buckler fighters um, yeah. and uh, left and right there are musicians and uh, right. yeah, yeah absolutely no I totally agree yeah and so you can get the full experience after all not just your regular black plastic outfit and uh, trainers mm. in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a modern gym, a modern hall, but there you are wearing uh, proper period shoes uh, on a wooden period floor. Period and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that so. sounds marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the one a good idea I never acted on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dude, write the book. Let it do a Harry Potter on you. Okay, you're good. Right, idea. or a Stephen King. Yeah, and that's a good idea. And then we do this. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today, Roland. It's been a great pleasure, as always. I oh, hope to I've talk to you again completely soon. Completely enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you again. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Roland. Remember to go to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast to get the episode show notes and to download your free copy of sword fighting for writers game designers and martial artists tune in next week when i'll be talking to siobhan richardson at fighter actress on twitter and other places if you'd like to look her up where we talk about stage combat shoes historical martial arts and other things you may recognize siobhan from the front cover of my latest book from medieval manuscript to modern practice so don't miss that episode 
And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. See you next week.